The Lord's table is a very special and important ritual in the local church and for the local church, and it is for everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ritual that has reality is ritual that teaches through symbol significant doctrinal points. We go back to the Old Testament. There were various rituals that were conducted in the tabernacle and the temple, rituals that involved sacrifice, rituals that involved cleansing, rituals that spoke of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ritual has reality in two ways. First of all, because of what it is communicating in terms of truth about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ or perhaps the uh, spiritual life of the particular dispensation involved. Second, it has reality because there is something real on the other end. Religions that are not based on the Bible and do not, are not based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross are not based on reality. They are simply activities that are, that engage the emotions or the, or appeal to the psychological well-being of the individual, provide some sort of subjective pleasure to them, but they do not relate at all to the truth as God has disclosed it to us in His Word. The Lord's table is designed to teach us and to remind us of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It is an extremely simple ceremony. It involves only two elements, the bread and the cup. One would think that... <clears throat> One would think that a ritual that taught about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ would have to be very complex, something that would have to be very sophisticated. And yet, in the brilliance of God's plan, truth is usually communicated in very simple ways so that uh, everybody can grasp its meaning. The two elements in the Lord's table are the bread, which is unleavened bread, and the cup, which is Historically has been wine, but as I have pointed out in the past, due to the influence of legalistic American Baptists in the 19th century, there was a shift from wine to grape juice. So most churches have grape juice, although some still use wine. And in one case, as I've told you, uh, a church I know of in Dallas, they use both, but they never told anybody that. So, so even though there was two rings of grape juice and two rings of, of wine, uh, unless you had been there for a while, you didn't know which was which. And I went there with a friend, and we argued after afterward that he said, well, that was wine. I said, that wasn't wine. That was grape juice. And it was six months before we <laughs> learned what was really going on. But these two elements are designed to teach about the person of Christ in the bread and the work of Christ in the cup. The elements have their historical root in the Passover meal that was taken by the Jews the night before they were delivered from their slavery in Egypt. Therefore, the, the doctrinal baggage, as it were, that these elements carry go back into ancient times and speak of the deliverance from slavery. In the same way, the elements of the Lord's table in the New Testament speak of the deliverance from slavery 
to sin, the work, the gracious work of God in providing a Savior who paid the penalty in full for us on the cross so that all we have to do is simply accept that for our own. And that is symbolized by eating and drinking the cup, just as anyone can eat or drink, anyone can believe. Eating and drinking pictures accepting or taking something for one's own, taking something into one's life. And that is the idea portrayed uh, in this element of faith in Christ, accepting Christ as one's own personal Savior. The bread is unleavened because leaven in the Scripture is used as a symbol for sin. And Jesus Christ was born sinless, as we've studied the last several weeks, in the virgin conception and virgin birth. He was born without sin. Therefore, he did not inherit the sin nature from Adam. Not having a sin nature, there was no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. And at no point in his life did Jesus Christ ever disobey the Father or act independently of the Father, and therefore there was no personal sin. That meant that he was completely qualified as the sinless God-man to go to the cross and die there as our substitute. He was qualified to be the mediator and to pay the penalty for our sins. The cup is a picture of blood, the redness of the wine is a picture of blood and therefore speaks of the sacrificial element of Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. In the Old Testament, there was blood shed by the uh, animal sacrifices. The lamb specifically that was sacrificed at Passover portrayed the Lord Jesus Christ so that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that shedding of blood was not effective for anything. It merely had ceremonial or ritual value. It was good, it was good in its ritual teaching because it cleansed the people ritually, but not actually. They were not saved by that blood. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The The sacrifice in the Old Testament was a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it was not a picture of his physical death, because physical death itself is not the penalty for sin. But physical death is perhaps the most horrible consequence of the penalty of sin, which was spiritual death, separation from God, who is the source of all life. So the Physical death of Christ also is a representation of what took place spiritually between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. It was during that time that the heavens were darkened so that no one could look upon the horrible suffering that Jesus Christ endured during that time when he who knew no sin the impeccable, sinless Lord Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf when God the Father in his justice imputed to Jesus Christ all the sins of humanity. And it was during that time that he paid the penalty for sin. And when that time was over, Jesus said, it is finished. Not only did Jesus say it was finished, but in a careful reading of John's account of the cross, John says, and when it was finished. So twice John emphasizes the fact that it was finished 
before Jesus Christ died, died physically. So what was finished? What was finished was the redemptive plan of God, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that was necessary for our salvation was completed before Jesus Christ died physically. So why did he have to die physically? Because physical death, as I stated earlier, is the most extreme consequence of all the consequences of spiritual death. And by dying physically, Jesus Christ would be raised physically from the dead, demonstrating that he had conquered all of the consequences of spiritual death. He had paid the penalty and conquered death, and that he was therefore accepted by God the Father as the perfect sacrifice, and that his sacrifice was indeed pleasing to God and accepted by his righteousness and justice. Now, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover meal, which looked back to that deliverance from slavery in Egypt for the Jews. He took two elements, the bread and the cup, and he invested them with new meaning, new meaning that would not only look back to what Christ did on the cross, but also look forward to his second coming, because Jesus had said that he would not drink wine again until he came into his kingdom. So just as the Passover meal looked back to Jesus, I mean, looked back to the sacrifice or the the, um, deliverance, of the Jews from slavery in Egypt and looked forward in anticipation to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The cup, the bread and the cup look back to what Christ did on the cross, but they also remind us that he is coming again in his kingdom at the second coming. So there's that twofold aspect. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that, that we are to Uh, do this in a manner of fellowship with God. The only restriction on the Lord's table is that we are in fellowship with the Lord. That, of course, means that you must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't have to be a member of this church or a member of any other church or any denomination. It is open to anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to be in fellowship with God. Paul says that we are to examine ourselves, and the reason that the Corinthians were having trouble was because of their carnality. Many of them were sick and weary, and many of them slept. That is a euphemism for the sin unto death. So they had gone through divine discipline because they came to the Lord's table with wrong motives and out of fellowship. We come to the Lord's table in order to remember what he has done for us. Jesus said to do these things in remembrance of him. It reminds us on a monthly basis that all that we have and all that we are is due to the grace of God and the unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to give you the opportunity to prepare yourselves uh, for taking in the Word, to concentrate on what you know about the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross in your behalf. During this time, the deacons will come forward, and then we will return thanks for each element. Let's pray. Our Father, we now come to the Lord's table in order to remember your work on the cross on our behalf. Father, we thank you that we have so great a salvation that 
that there is nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it. There is nothing we can do to merit it. All we can do is accept it as a free gift. Father, we thank you for this first element, the bread, and what it teaches us. It reminds us that Jesus Christ was not merely a man, but he was the perfect God-man, that he was sinless, that he was completely qualified to go to the cross as our substitute, as our mediator, and to pay the penalty of sin on our behalf. It reminds us that he was true humanity, yet without sin. Now, Father, as we partake of the bread, we ask that uh, you keep us mindful of all that we have because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus Christ celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he came to the bread. He broke the bread and passed it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Let's return thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for the cup and what it represents in terms of the substitutionary spiritual sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're reminded that we could do nothing to pay for our own sins, and you devised a perfect plan by sending the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, to come to, the, come to earth to become incarnate through the virgin conception and virgin birth to grow up in his humanity and to go to the cross and there to suffer unimaginable pain and anguish as he bore in his body our sins. We thank you for that perfect sacrifice that we can add nothing to it, we cannot earn it, we cannot merit it, for everything was done that was necessary. Father, we thank you for this cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus Christ then took the cup. It was actually the third cup in the course of the meal called the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. A couple of announcements before we begin. First of all, I want to make sure that we get this out on, on tape and on the Internet, that we are going to be putting together a missions trip this summer, July 10th to 24th, for uh, young people, uh, those who are 16 and over, college age, 20-year-olds, actually anyone who would like to go and uh, get a little experience doing some work in the foreign field, finding out what a missionary does. This entails going over to Kiev for two weeks. Uh, in the middle of this, there will be a, a one-week camp for uh, children outreach to uh, evangelize uh, kids in, in Kiev. Uh, along with this, after that, uh, you'll also stay in the homes of some different folks who are in, in uh, the church over there that Jim Myers has established. Stay with them, get some opportunities to be involved in some other other ministries that they do there in terms of hospital ministries, orphanage ministries, and then some free time to see some of the sites around Kiev. Now, those of you who've seen my pictures when I come back, as I go in the dead of winter when everything's bleak and uh, cold and gray like it is here, I do that for a couple of reasons, one of which is there's not a whole lot else to do over there in the dead dark of winter, so you have better attendance and people are more likely to come. If you go over there in the middle of the summer, 
then folks are at their dodges or they're out sailing or boating or, you know, just enjoying their their warm weather, just as they are here, getting involved in recreation or fishing, and not coming to church. See, just like here. So I prefer to go in the winter, but in the summer it's quite beautiful. Uh, pictures I've seen of the springtime and summer, It's, uh, it's uh, the climate there is much like here, so the flowers come out and everything is green and, and uh, beautiful. The other announcement that I want to make sure goes out because I know that there are a number of men who listen either over the internet or get tapes. You can't hear me? Pam says it's not on. Hadn't been on through the whole service. So we're not getting anything through the speakers. But it's going into the tape deck and that's what matters. Um the announcement goes, there are pastors, and many of these men do not have tremendous skills in Greek. And I am conducting, I've been asked to conduct a seminar on Greek grammar for people who don't know Greek based on the uh, dissertation that I did, that I wrote last year for my doctorate. And so that will be conducted either on, I mean, it's going to be conducted two weekends in a row, and you come to one or the other. We want limited class size, so we did not... Uh, want to have more than 50 students, so we thought we would have at least uh, 75 or to 100 come. So we split it between two weeks, and you register for either the first or second week, the first to the third of May, or the eighth through the tenth of May. And this will be conducted at the Holy Trinity Missionary Baptist Church in Houston. And if you have any questions about that, then you need to contact me. That ought to take care of announcements. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the insight it gives us into not only our salvation, but into the unique spiritual life of the church age. Father, as we study the things before us this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with them, that we would be motivated to make the study of doctrine, the application of doctrine, and our growth to spiritual maturity a matter of the highest priority that we might be not be distracted by the details of life and the affairs of life, but that we might continue to press on to the high calling that you have given us. Father, we pray, too, for our nation, for our president, for our military leaders, for our civic leaders, that you would give them wisdom in how they handle the current crisis, the war on terrorism, and uh, if we go to war with Iraq, then 
uh, protection during that time. Father, we pray that you would continue to secure this nation. We know that our security comes only from you. Our security ultimately is not based on our military. It's not based on our our uh, police force or, or our, uh, any other uh, policing agency. It is based exclusively on your will. And we pray that you would keep us safe, keep us secure, and that you would give us victory in these conflicts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second John chapter eight. Second John chapter eight, or verse eight. Second John, verse eight. We'll pick up the context where we've been studying the last several weeks related to Christology. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. The problem they faced in the early church was there was a, an area of heresy where there was developing a teaching called docetism that denied the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Their thinking was that, that God could not appear in flesh because if God appeared in flesh, it would somehow destroy true deity, change true deity. That sounded like the sound came up there pretty well for a minute. Sound okay over there? You guys getting it? Okay. Now, we have gone through the doctrine of the hypostatic union the last two or three Sundays, starting with the virgin birth and then dealing with the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. What we see under the doctrine of the incarnation is that the eternal, undiminished deity of the second person of the Trinity becomes flesh, as John puts it in John 1.14, and dwelt among us. He existed, as Paul says in Philippians 2, which we studied last time, in the form of God, and became in the, came in the likeness of man. So eternal deity added to itself true humanity. Undiminished deity added to itself true humanity, so that in the incarnation you have a new person, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has two natures, one nature of undiminished deity plus one nature of true humanity. It took the early church some... 130 years to completely articulate what this meant. And by the Council of Chalcedon, they finally got the verbiage right and the terminology right. And I want to put this up on the overhead for you so that you can see uh, how they articulated this. They said, we also teach that we apprehend this one and only Christ Son, Lord, only begotten in two natures. And we do this without confusing the two natures. There's no bleeding over. The humanity doesn't bleed over into into humanity into deity and the deity doesn't bleed over into humanity. It's not taking like taking a glass of water and a glass of cherry Kool-Aid and mixing them together so that now you have uh, something that is neither Kool-Aid nor nor water but is just a mix. 
there's distinct natures without transmuting one nature into the other, without dividing them into two separate categories. You don't have two persons. You don't have two mentalities. You don't have a divine Jesus and a human Jesus. See, that would be two persons and two natures. There's one person. So everything that Jesus Christ does, one person does. Now, it may be a sign of his true deity when he uh, demonstrates his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration or when his power bursts forth and knocks down the Roman guards when they come to arrest him. Uh, or it may be a sign of his humanity when he thirsts, when he's weary, when he's tired. But the one person thirsts. The one person flashes forth his glory. But it shows either one nature or the other nature. One nature into the, without transmuting one nature into the other, without dividing them into two separate categories, without contrasting them according to area or function. There is no disagreement between the two. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. That is, his deity is not nullified or changed by the union with humanity, and neither is true humanity changed by its being united with deity. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person, in one essence. They are not divided or cut into two persons, but are together the one and only, and only begotten, Logos of God. There's that term John uses in John 1, 1 through 3 and 14. The Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified. Thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. Thus the symbol of the Father that refers to an ancient creed has handed down to us. Now that is just the part of the Council of Chalcedon in relationship to the person of Christ. The next paragraph in the Chalcedonian Creed, which I thought I had on there, I, I don't, states, uh, goes into talking about the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's all the Council of Chalcedon said. Now this is just a little interesting application for you, no extra charge, to show you the significance of having a solid Christology. In the Chalcedonian Creed, you have a statement that is, Similar to this one from the earlier uh, Creed of Constantinople in 381. Notice the line here. In the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father. In the ninth century, there was a synod conferred, a local synod. Now, see these Chalcedon, uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon were called ecumenical councils, not in the negative sense we have for ecumenism today, but in the sense of universal. That means all the churches that were known at that time, remember there's no denominations, you don't even have the development yet of what we would call Roman Catholicism. You just have the what is called the Old Catholic Church, which has not yet gone into distinctly Roman Catholic uh, doctrines yet. It's the old Catholic Church. See, the name term Catholic means universal. It means one. So that's a not a bad term. It's when it becomes Roman 
when it elevates Rome and elevates the Roman bishop over all the churches, that you begin to see the deterioration of the old Catholic Church. But in the in the ninth century, there held a local synod in Europe at Toledo in Spain, and they modified this creed. They added a phrase. They, I think, correctly added a phrase. They added the phrase, "Who proceeds from the Father." And the Son. Now, at the risk of boring some of you who haven't gone into this kind of technicality before, let me show you what this is called. This phrase, and the Son, is in Latin, filioque. The Q-U-E is the conjunction and, Filio is son, so this became known as the filioque clause. Very famous clause because the Christians in the East, the Byzantine church, uh, did not think that these creeds should be modified. They viewed them, they had elevated the ecumenical creeds to the same authority as Scripture. So when the Western church modified the creed and added this phrase, even though it was correct, the Eastern church completely rejected it revolted against the the Pope and the Western Church. And this is one of the major things that led to a split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church. So the Eastern Orthodox Church are, are, are state churches, so they're referred to as Syrian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, uh, Egyptian Orthodox, which is also called Coptic, Russian Orthodox, and now there's a breakaway Ukrainian Orthodox, but all the Orthodox churches have patriarchs, and the patriarchs are the ultimate authority instead of one individual uh, like the Pope. And that's another reason they split. They split for three reasons. They rejected a one-man control. They didn't think the creeds could be changed, and they didn't agree on the date of Easter. But it was this filioque clause that was important, so all of the Eastern churches reject this. Now, why is that important? Let me show you why doctrine matters. This is such a great illustration of why we were on Christology. I thought I would just point this out. If you have God the Father and God the Son both sending the Holy Spirit, it says something about that the authority of the Son is equal to the authority of the Father in relationship to the Holy Spirit. If the Son is not involved, then there is a subtle hint that the authority of the Son or the Lordship of the Son is not identical to the Lordship of the Father. And so when you come, come along and you say Jesus Christ is Lord, that does not have the same significance. So he is not as authoritative. And so weakness, subtle weakness, slips into your concept of the Lordship of Christ. And so if you have a weak concept of the authority of Jesus Christ, then what leaks into that vacuum, what just sort of oozes into that vacuum, is something else. Something else has to absorb that that um, that that weakness, something else has to pick up that authority that is lost by Jesus Christ. And what happened in the East is that the state moves into that vacuum. And this is why in your Eastern churches you have had this incredible problem on the political realm with authoritarian governments. 
Now, if you go back and you look at an understanding of the Trinity, where the Father is equal to the Son, and the Father is equal to the Spirit, and the and the Son is equal to the Holy Spirit, where you have true equality among the persons of the Godhead, and then you have, because of your understanding that the Son is begotten by the Father, the Father and the Son, uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, then you have functional differences. This enables you to, on the one hand, hold to a true and genuine equality, while at the other hand have functional differences. This allows for you to have a, a, a government basis where you have true authority, but it is an authority that does not destroy the equality of the subjects with one another. And it is that understanding of the Trinity in the West that ultimately comes out in the Protestant Reformation and ultimately supplies the epistemological basis for understanding true liberty and freedom that is what gave birth to liberty both in England and the U.S. because it was the English-speaking people who pushed Reformation theology to its furthest development. But in the East, you never could develop a true concept of equality. Why? Because your view of the Trinity, which is ultimate reality, your view of ultimate reality never allows for true equality. There's this breakdown and this loss of authority out here on the sun. So this is why these what seem to be minute, minute issues in theology work themselves out in, in philosophy and in application in areas that uh, are quite dangerous and quite destructive. So that's just one other illustration of why uh, theology matters now. I know most people in most churches want theology to matter in your marriage and in your family, but you see it does because in a marriage you have two people who are equal and they're in an authority relationship. And the same thing happens. You lose a concept of, of the true uh, Trinitarian theology, then the only things left is an autocracy in the marriage where the husband becomes the tyrant or the wife becomes the tyrant because you don't have a basis for true equality and functional distinctiveness. And that can play out in churches too. So this is why there is uh, such a stress in the scriptures on having a sound and solid, a sound and solid view of uh, Jesus Christ, and having a sound Christology. Now we go back to our passage. We've studied the first part over the last three or four weeks that those who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh are deceivers. These deceivers were originally believers. We know that from 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but were not of us. That means that originally they were associated with the apostles. It is not a statement about their saved status. It is a, a statement about their association. They were going out and saying, we were with the apostles in, uh, we were with the apostles back in in Jerusalem, and our doctrine is their doctrine, when in fact it wasn't. And I've seen this happen before. In fact, I know of a case, I won't mention who it is, but I know of a case of a man on the Internet who was ordained by a certain pastor, and he advertises that right up front on his home page. And yet, 
because of problems in the way that man ran the church, ran his church, the pastor who ordained him basically cut him off. And yet for the last six years, his congregation doesn't know that relationship was breached. No one knows that relationship was breached. And he's building a ministry on the coattails of the man who ordained him, but no one knows that that relationship no longer exists. And this is the same kind of thing these deceivers were doing, as they were saying, oh, we were with the apostles. I was ordained by Peter. I was ordained by James. We were right there at the beginning, right after the resurrection. I was saved on the day of Pentecost. I was one of the 4,000. And yet now they're teaching a heretical doctrine about Jesus Christ, that he did not come in the actual flesh. So John warns of these deceivers. And then he says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. It is one who who deceives. They're, They're really teaching false doctrine. It may sound good. There may be many things that they are teaching that are right. This is what makes deception effective. A good deceiver is someone who teaches 98% truth and 2% error. It's not the 98% truth that's going to hurt you. It's that 2% of error. Charlie Clough used to use the illustration that that people need protein. I always love Charlie's illustrations because most of us are so so dim-witted in science and he's so good. Most of us need protein to live. We could go on an all-protein diet, follow Dr. Atkins... Remember, rattlesnake venom is 98% protein. You are 100% protein. You don't want to drink rattlesnake venom in order to get your protein. Well, of course not. See, um, you can take a, you can also take a mixture of water that's 98% water and 2% cyanide, and it's not the 98% water that's going to hurt you. It's the 2% of cyanide that's going to hurt you. And that's why sheep need to learn how to have a little, uh, uh, discernment when they are listening because there are pastors who teach many things that are right but at crucial areas they have introduced heresy that is destructive to the spiritual life of the people they are teaching. Unfortunately, I find most sheep never develop discernment. That's why Lord calls a sheep and one of the most stupid animals around. And I'm amazed when I have seen people who have been under excellent Bible teaching move or go somewhere else and find some pastor. And the next thing you know, they're listening to them. And uh, you just wonder, did they ever learn anything when they were under good Bible teaching? I've seen that so many times that I'm rather skeptical and cynical about about a lot of uh, believers as to whether they're really learning and understanding doctrine. This is the a deceiver and an antichrist. Not the antichrist, but he is teaching the same kind of thing that the antichrist will teach. Now, the word antichrist does not mean against Christ. In the Greek, that prefix, that preposition, anti, doesn't mean against. Anti in Latin means against, but anti in Greek means instead of, a substitute Christ. Someone who is, and this person is an antichrist because they're teaching a substitute Christ. They don't have a true Messiah. They may say Jesus saves. They may teach that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But what they really mean when you unpack the word Jesus is that this was just an apparition. It wasn't the true humanity. And so this is they're offering a false Christ. 
somebody, there are many cults who do this, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, many others have a pseudo-Christ. They talk about Jesus. They use biblical terminology to communicate what they're saying, but they do not mean the same thing that the Bible means. The Jesus they're talking about is not the same Jesus that the Bible is talking about. You have to analyze what they mean, who they're talking about, the character, the essence of Jesus. Is he the God-man? Is he undiminished deity and true humanity? Is he eternal? If not, it's not the same Jesus, and they're offering a pseudo-Jesus, a substitute Jesus who cannot save. And if they believe in that pseudo-Jesus, they will not go to heaven because it is not the Jesus of the Bible. See, passages like this indicate that that Christology and having a correct understanding of Jesus as true humanity, I mean, true humanity and undiminished deity is important. Notice that, that it will destroy your, if you are a believer, it will destroy your ability to have fellowship with God. Look at verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, that has to do with fellowship. If you don't continue with an accurate Christology, then you don't have God. That doesn't mean you don't have salvation. We'll see that when we get there. It means you don't have fellowship with God. He who abides in the doctrines of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Notice verse 10. We saw an application of this two weeks ago. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, that is a correct view of Jesus Christ. Remember we had the cult guy come in here two weeks ago to announce judgment on us. He had a false view of Christ. He was going to tell us all about the new Messiah, the Lord Julius Christ. Well, uh, verse 10, we saw a applic- live application right in front of your eyes. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. So... Since I knew who he was, as soon as he stood up, we kicked him out. Escorted him out the back, which is what you should do uh, calmly and politely to anyone who comes in with false doctrine. That's the same thing you should do when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door. Do not invite them into your house on the basis of verse 10. Do not receive them. Do not greet them. They are there to communicate heresy and to convince you. And so you do not put yourself in spiritual harm's way by even engaging in a conversation. But the only time I have wanted to do that, I couldn't do it. And I've always regretted it. I thought it would be a wonderful thing, but it would have violated Scripture. But one day I had, oh, who was in my house? Dave Hunt, um, a man named Harry Leaf, another uh, seminary grad. We had four of us, all who had... uh, who knew the scriptures well, three guys who were all in doctoral studies at Dallas. We were just getting ready. Tommy was there, too. We were just getting ready to go out the back door to leave to go to a debate, and two Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on the front door. I would have loved to have had the time to let them come in and be eaten alive, but, you know, that was not the way to do it, and obviously the Lord timed that so that we would not be tempted to uh, get involved in that. So John says that this is people who teach a false view of Christ are a deceiver and they are demonstrating the same mentality as the Antichrist. They are offering a substitute Savior. And always remember that a substitute only works if it's a good substitute. A counterfeit doesn't work if it's not a good counterfeit. If I tried to give you $100 from a Monopoly set, to pay off a $100 debt, you wouldn't accept it. The closer it resembles the, the true 
uh, thing, the more deceptive, the more effective it is. So you have to be very careful. There are many deceivers, as John says, who have gone out from us. And one of the tests is in the arena of Christology. In verse 8, he talks about why this is important. Look to yourselves. Don't just be concerned about the deceiver and their false doctrine, but examine yourselves to make sure that in your soul you correctly understand the doctrines of Christology. Why? It seems it seems somewhat abstract. It seems somewhat academic to pay attention to these things. But John says it's not just a matter of here and now. It's not just a matter of being able to correctly articulate the doctrine, but it will impact your eternal destiny in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the point that he brings out in the next phrase. Look to yourselves. Watch yourselves. Be diligent in examining what you believe that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. This reminds us of what Paul said back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. Notice abide is a verb is going to be important in the next couple of verses. That is the continuing fellowship with Christ. Abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, if we go back just a few verses, we see in verse 21, John saying, First uh, John 2.21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lies of the truth. He who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So John develops the same theme in a much broader sense back in First John where he talks about correct Christology Lee is part of and is necessary for having fellowship with God. It's not just a matter of having, uh, of not having sins that aren't forgiven, that aren't confessed, but it is a matter of having correct doctrine as well. See, we want to make fellowship simply this relational thing that has to do with sinning or not sinning, but John keeps driving home the point that, that fellowship is also related to having correct doctrine. Not in every jot and tittle, but in your basics, especially basics like understanding the hypostatic union. So this brings us to a very important doctrine related to rewards and working for rewards and the warning of 1 John 2.28 that we should have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This is related to what happens to the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. So with that, let's take a look at the six major judgments that take place from the time of the cross. Six major judgments that take place from the time of the cross. First judgment is the judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross for all of our personal sins. The judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross for all of our personal sins. It was during that time that God the Father, operating as the supreme judge of the universe imputed every single sin of human history to the impeccable Jesus Christ. This occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. 
And Jesus Christ, who was sinless, bore in his body, 1 Peter 2.24, every single sin. Jesus Christ was born sinless through the miraculous virgin conception and birth, which we studied two weeks ago. Through this means, the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus Christ took on true humanity. Born of a virgin meant that he did not inherit Adam's, Adam's sin nature. He was, did not have imputed to him Adam's original sin, and he did not commit any personal sins during his life on the earth. He was indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and he lived his life, that is, in terms of solving problems, facing tests, conquering challenges, orienting his mental attitude to life, all on the basis of the Holy Spirit. Now let me repeat those categories again. In terms of solving problems, whenever there were difficulties in his life, he used the stress busters, the problem-solving devices, He, he'd, except for confession, of course, the filling of the Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, a personal sense of his eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and uh, occupation, he didn't have occupation with Christ either, so he has eight of the ten, and his own perfect happiness. He, In terms of solving problems, he relied on that through the filling of the Holy Spirit. When he faced tests, when he went into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, he handled the tests by dependence on God the Holy Spirit. He conquered challenges, whatever the challenges would be to his ministry, he conquered them through dependence on God the Holy Spirit. And he oriented his mental attitude. He grew in wisdom and stature, Luke tells us in Luke 2.54, Luke 2.54, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. In his growth mentally, his education, his learning, he oriented his mental attitude by means of the Holy Spirit. He learned divine viewpoint. He did not have any human viewpoint in his soul. All of that is done through the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that other areas of life which necessitated his using his divine attributes were excluded. See, some people have gotten the idea when we say Jesus led his life on the basis of the Holy Spirit that that meant that Jesus did not ever operate in his deity. Point. If Jesus never functioned in his deity, then there is no evidence that Jesus was God. Period. Now, oh, but he claimed to be God. Yes, but you realize from Genesis 1 on, God never makes a claim he doesn't back up with empirical data to demonstrate the validity of his claim. So if Jesus merely claimed to be God without empirical evidence, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, that he was God, then you have no evidence that he was God. You're still stuck with him being just a good man. Jesus was God and he did perform things from his deity, but not to solve problems, not to face tests, not to conquer challenges, and not to grow and develop in his own spiritual life. He did them in order to validate his claims to be God. When he changed the water into wine, only the Creator can do that. 
It does not say he changed the water into wine by the Holy Spirit. Jesus changed the water into wine by his own power. Because remember Colossians 1, 14 says that by him and through him all things came into existence. He is the creator. John 1 tells us that, that all things were created by him and there is nothing that came into existence that wasn't created by him. There are other examples. When he calms the storm, shows his power over nature. Only God has power over nature. When he, when he, uh, forgives the, the, uh, when he forgives the cripple and says, your sins are forgiven. He says, what's easier to do? To heal you or to forgive your sins? Only God has the prerogative to forgive sins. So by, by forgiving sins, he is demonstrating that he is God. But in none of those examples is he solving problems in his own life. Is he facing tests in his own life? Is he uh, conquering any challenges? Or uh, does it involve his own personal growth in terms of his spiritual life? He is autonomously, that is, independent of these issues, uh, demonstrating his own deity. He is not operating independently of the Father because the Father's plan included that he would be in, involved uh, in doing these things to demonstrate his deity. So Jesus Christ lived his life on the basis of the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean he never operated in his deity. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, in John 20:31, it says that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That these are the signs he performed. If you go through the seven signs plus the resurrection in the Gospel of John, those seven signs are all done from his deity. Because why? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of Man? No. The Son of God. Son of God being a title for his deity. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is fully God. He is the Messiah. He is fully God, the God-man, the God incarnate. This is the theme of John. He uh, became man. He was incarnate and dwelt among us. So the first judgment of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ on the cross for our personal Sins And what sustained him on the cross during that test was his dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. Second judgment in human history is the judgment of self. The judgment of self, the judgment for the believer on himself to recover from sin and carnality. We just did this in the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because our sins have already been judged on the cross, all we need do is follow the procedure of 1 John 1.9. This restores us to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we move back inside the soul fortress so that we are again advancing in our spiritual growth. First judgment is Christ on the cross for our personal sins. Second judgment is our self-judgment for sin. Third judgment is the judgment seat of Christ, which is our subject. We'll expand it more later. The judgment seat of Christ, which is the evaluation of all church-age believers. This takes place between the rapture and the second coming in heaven during the time of the tribulation on earth. Fourth major judgment since the cross is the judgment of surviving tribulation unbelieving Gentiles. 
surviving tribulation, unbelieving Gentiles at the second coming. Now remember, I'll put this up here on the screen. Make sure you catch this. We are in the church age. Church age began on the day of Pentecost, 33 A.D., and extends to the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ takes all church age believers alive and dead to heaven. We are. We meet him in the clouds. And then he takes us to heaven. John 14.1, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go, I will come again and take you there uh, with me. See, he doesn't say, I'll take you to earth. He says, I'll take you there to those mansions. So that indicates that it can't be at the end of the tribulation. On earth, there will be a seven-year tribulation that begins with the signing of a peace treaty uh, in Daniel chapter 9. The uh, Antichrist signs, the prince who is to come, signs a treaty with Israel. That begins Daniel's 70th week. That ends with the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now, the, this point, right after the rapture, you have three people. We'll just call them A, B, and C. They're all unbelievers. If they were, any of them had been believers, they would have gone up in the rapture. A is going to be a Gentile, and this Gentile becomes a believer in the church age. B is going to be, stay a Jewish unbeliever, throughout the church age. The third person, C, is a Jew, and this Jew becomes a believer 30 minutes before Jesus Christ comes back. Now, this Gentile believer is going to go all the way through the tribulation, and then they are going to survive and they're going to have a mortal body that goes into the millennial kingdom. Now see, if the rapture occurred at the end of the tribulation, like some people say, then this guy would get a mortal body at that point, and he couldn't go into the uh, millennium to, to uh, procreate, to, to marry, to procreate, have children, and repopulate the earth during the millennium. That's another reason why the rapture has to come before the tribulation. The Jewish unbeliever is going to make it down to about uh, a couple of hours before Jesus comes back, but unless he's positive to the word, he's not going to understand he has to flee down to Basra in the desert of Moab, and that's where the Lord's going to come back. So because he's not positive, he doesn't know where he's supposed to run to. He, he, he just sees people fleeing Jerusalem because Jerusalem is going to be almost destroyed in the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, all unbelieving Jews in the tribulation are going to be destroyed in the Battle of Armageddon before Jesus comes back. Only this guy, this guy's not a believer, but he's got some friends who are believers, and they've told him that, that one of the signs of the coming of Jesus at the, at, at the uh, second coming, according to Matthew 24, is the signs in the heavens and the, the abomination of desolation, and that Jesus said that they had to uh, get out of Jerusalem and flee to the mountains. So he's going to run off with all of his friends, even though he's not a believer yet. He's considering it. He's positive. And then he goes with them and they survive all of the attacks and assaults that will take place on them as they're headed out of Judea and across the Jordan. And eventually they hole up in the mountains, just a few Jews, 
maybe just a few thousand, maybe 20 or 30,000, not a large number, are going to escape to Basra, down there just south of Petra in uh, modern Jordan, a very rocky, hilly uh, area that will be protected, and God will protect them. And Jeremiah tells us that Jesus will come and make his case with them at that point, and it is then that the Jews finally do what Jesus said in, at the end of Matthew 23. Jesus says, I will not come again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a clear statement that they have accepted him as Messiah. And so while those Jews are down there in Basra, they will finally recognize Jesus as Messiah. And this third guy says, yes, he's Messiah. And they say, Jesus, come and save us. At that point, they turn to Jesus as Messiah, call upon him to come and deliver them. And this is what triggers the second coming when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, destroys the enemies of uh, of Jerusalem. And that's why Romans 11 says that at that time, all Israel will be saved. That's why I say at the end of the tribulation, all the Jews are going to be saved because the the Jewish unbelievers don't survive. They're killed in the battle of Armageddon. They're killed in all of the assaults against the Jews from the Antichrist during the tribulation. The only ones who survive are those who are in Basra. And all those who are in Basra are those who have accepted Jesus as Savior. And that's the group that will still have mortal bodies. And as Jews, they will repopulate Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. So the fourth judgment is the judgment of surviving tribulation unbeliever Gentiles. There is no judgment of surviving Jewish unbelievers because there are no surviving Jewish unbelievers. Fifth judgment is the judgment of fallen angels at the end of the millennium. The judgment of fallen angels at the end of the millennium. It is at this time that uh, the sentence is applied. They were all judged and condemned in eternity past because of the fact that they followed Satan in rebellion against God. But the execution of that judgment is not applied until the end of the tribulation. And that is when the fallen angels are assigned to the lake of fire. Sixth judgment is the second resurrection and judgment of all unbelievers. This takes place at the end of the millennium. Uh, The second resurrection and judgment of all unbelievers at the end of the millennium, uh, they are all cast into the lake of fire. So all fallen angels go in the lake of fire at the the end of the millennium. Point five, all fallen angels are assigned to the lake, I mean, excuse me, uh, all unbelievers are assigned to the lake of fire at the end of the millennium at the great white throne judgment. So those are the six judgments that take place on the earth. Now the third one I mentioned is the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ and this is really an evaluation of all believers. I'm just going to go into point number one. We've got the doctrine of uh, the judgment seat of Christ we need to cover in detail, but it's based on the concept of judgment. Now, there are two words in, 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 in Greek for judgment. They're usually translated judgment or condemnation, but there are actually two Greek words that we must understand. The first is based on the Greek verb krino, K-R-I-N-O, and there are various uh, forms of that word. The verb is uh, there's another verb, krenomai, 
katakrima are all words related to this for judgment and condemnation. It primarily denotes the idea of separation and has the idea of judging or pronouncing uh, judgment, uh, judgment from a judicial authority. Sometimes it means to execute that judgment or to be involved in a court case. The second word that is used, and this is the word that is often used, for example, in John 3.18, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. That's katakrima. So this often has the idea of judgment in the sense of condemnation. The second word that is translated judgment is based on the Greek verb dokimazo, D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O, or the noun is dokimas, and this has the idea of evaluation. Judgment, krino judgment, is negative. Dokimazo is positive. It is an evaluation not to show all the terrible things that you've done, but to reveal what you've done that's right. See, sometimes you're going to hear somebody teach about the judgment seat of Christ, and they go to passages in the gospel where it talks, Jesus talks about the fact that you will be accountable for every word that you utter. And uh, and they say, now, with the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to trot out every dirty joke you ever told. God's going to trot out every evil thought you ever had. God's going to trot out all those secret sins that you don't want anybody to know about. And they're all going to be paraded across this huge screen. And the videotape of your life and your thought is going to be portrayed. So so you better clean your life up now and then go on and, and put a huge guilt trip on everybody. But see, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all those sins. So that's over and done with. Those sins are not going to be revealed in that way, what's going to happen in the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, uh, 12 and following, is the idea of e- evaluation. The imagery he uses is that all the product of your life is just going to be piled up and it's going to be set to the torch. And only that which has eternal value, called gold, silver, and precious stones, only that which has eternal value, that is the production of the Holy Spirit, is going to survive those flames. See, what what is revealed in the judgment is the gold, silver, and precious stones, not the wood, hay, and straw. So it is the positive that is revealed, not the negative. God's not there to embarrass you. Now, well, wait a minute. You said that there are some who are going to have shame at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 John 2.28. Yes, because what's going to happen is when, when the Lord sets that evaluative torch to their works, everything's going to be burned up, including the clothes on their back. And they're going to be ashamed because there's nothing there, because they wasted their life, because there was no production by the Holy Spirit. There was no time in fellowship. There was no intake of doctrine. There was no growth. There was no advanced spiritual maturity. There was no spiritual growth at all. There is nothing there. They did nothing for the Lord, and they are uh, embarrassed at that point. They enter into heaven, the text says, yet as through fire. So the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment seat to put 
the fear of God into everybody that every every secret sin will be revealed, but is an evaluative judgment to reveal that which you have done positively under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit produced in your lives that will have eternal value and glory. And what's left over is that which is rewarded. What is left over is the basis for reward, and rewards have to do with crowns, decorations, and rewards have to do with position and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom in terms of ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ and on into eternity. Well, this understanding of these two different words is actually point one under the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll continue that doctrine and the study of the judgment seat of Christ next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged and motivated by the truth that that while we are saved freely by faith alone in Christ alone, there will be judgment, there will be evaluation uh, to determine our eternal role and relationship and position and place in heaven and responsibilities. And this is to encourage us to be consistent with doctrine, to to run the race, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, to, to not be disqualified, that we may uh, glorify you, that when we enter into heaven, we may hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The gospel is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of ritual. It is simply a matter of accepting the free gift of salvation that was provided by Jesus Christ on the cross when he paid the penalty for your sins. The moment you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, God the Father and his omniscience knows that you are trusting in Christ alone. And at that instant, you are born again. You receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. You receive eternal life imputed to you. And these gifts can never be taken away. And you are an eternal member of God's royal family. And you have an eternal destiny in heaven. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this this morning, that we may be encouraged to press on to spiritual maturity, to glorify you to the maximum in our life and time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.